two courses, two outcomes. That's what our psalm this afternoon highlights for us. Two roads, two destinations. One is narrow that leads to life. The other is wide that leads to destruction. The psalm provides two antithetical realities or contrasting pictures. One is that of a tree firmly planted. The other is chaff. Two paths, two consequences. One path is a path to prosperity. The other is the path to perdition. Two ways, two ends. One way is that of the righteous. The other way is that of the wicked. Two men, two distinctions. One man, the blessed. The other man, the sinner. Hence, two important questions arise from this psalm. What is the blessed man and who is the blessed man? We've recently ended our study through the Beatitudes and in God's sovereign wisdom with no clever planning on my part, he has led us today on the Sunday of our church's first public service in Rockville, Maryland to further reflect on the blessed man, which I hope doesn't spoil you uh, the punchline for this sermon. This afternoon, we're beginning a new intermittent series Uh, Summer in the Psalms, a study through the book of Psalms. Lord willing, if our gracious God gives me a few more decades to preach, I would love to get through this entire book in the next 15 years to cover all 150 Psalms. Uh, We'll be aiming to cover 10 chapters each summer from June to August, Summer in the Psalms. So Lord willing, that would be a great time for us, for our church. Uh, To give you a bit of background on the book of Psalms, Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew lyrical poems, songs, and prayers that come from different periods of Israel's history, spanning almost a thousand years. From the time of Moses uh, to the time of the Ezraites, referring to the book of Ezra and the time of the Babylonian exile, uh, many of the Psalms were written by King David. 73 of them were written by King David. And it also includes other authors, Asaph, who wrote 12 of them, sons of Korah, who wrote 10 of them, Heman and Ethan, the Ezraites, uh, who are the other worship leaders in the temple, who wrote two. Solomon wrote uh, one or two. And as mentioned, even Moses have their own psalms, two or three of them. And the remaining about one-third, 49 of them, uh, were written by anonymous authors. The title of the book originates from the Hebrew word for praise songs, or the Greek word, psalmoi, which means songs of praise. And that's where we get the English title, psalms. Now, many of these psalms came to be used by uh, the choir that would sing in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book, meaning not every psalm was set to music, not every psalm was sung. At some point, after Israel's exile to Babylon, uh, these psalms were gradually gathered together and intentionally arranged, most likely finalized by the time of Ezra uh, into the book of Psalm that we have today. The book, if you really study it carefully, has a very unique design and message that you won't notice unless you read it entirely cover to cover. So I want to encourage all of us uh, this summer, spend time reading through the entire book of uh, Psalm 150. Don't be intimidated by the volume that it's 150 chapters. I know that you will definitely enjoy it. Uh, You'll notice in your study of the book of Psalms that it's divided into five large sections. Book 1, chapters 3 through 41. Book 2, chapters 42 through 72. Book 3, chapters 73 through 89. Book 4, chapters 90 through 106. And book 5, 
chapters 107 to 145. And finally, the last five poems of praise, uh, which each begin with the word, the five last psalms begin with the word hallelujah, which in Hebrew is a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, hallelujah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. What is interesting, and we know, uh, and, we, and how we know before chapter headings were added to the Bible for us to know its divisions, book one, two, three, four, five, is that at the end of each of the five books of the psalm that I mentioned, the last verse of each of the books ends with the phrase, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now within this masterpiece, there are many types of psalms, but basically they fall into two main categories. Psalms of lament, which express pain, confusion, and anger about how terrible the world is and how horribly these things are affecting the psalmists. And so these psalms draw attention to what's wrong in the world, asking God to do something about it. You'll read lots of these laments in the psalms, which teaches us how we ought to properly respond uh, regarding the evil that is very present around the world. What's interesting, however, is uh, as you see the, uh, the psalms, you'll see that the psalms of lament are primarily in the earlier books of the psalms, in books one through three. And the other types of psalms that you see, uh, as I mentioned, the psalms of praise. Now, psalms of praise are psalms of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what is good in the world, and they recount the stories of God's faithfulness in Israel and thank God for it. And you'll see these psalms, psalms of praise, in books four and five. And in this very unique and intentional structure of the psalms, uh, the shift from lament to praise, it has a very profound meaning for all of us. It teaches us about the nature of our prayer and ultimately the nature of our praise and how we ought to live the Christian life as we hope in the messianic kingdom that is to come. Uh, this will create the tension for us as we look out to the tragic state of the world and of our lives. The Psalms teaches us not to ignore the painful realities of our world and of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith warrants us, encourages us to look forward, look forward to the hope of the messianic kingdom and its messianic king. And that's why it's so significant, and that's why it's so amazing that the first two psalms of the entire book, which serves as the introduction, begins with a focus on the man who is blessed and all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. It causes us to look at the blessed man. So, what is the blessed man? Who is the blessed man? I want us to examine three characteristics of the blessed man. So let's consider point number one, his righteous way. Point number two, his delightful truth. And point number three, his prosperous life. Righteous way, delightful truth, and prosperous life. I pray that as we look to these amazing truths of this psalm that has encouraged millions upon millions of Christians for generations, that you would prayerfully seek how you as an individual and how we corporately as a new church can more better reflect, look like the blessed man of our psalms in the way you live and love the gospel. For however many years the Lord will sustain us and bless our church. Amen? So let's read Psalm chapter 1. It says this. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what is the blessed man? We need to first know what it is before we decide who it is we'd like to become, right? So first, let's consider his righteous way from verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says this, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So again, who is a blessed man? According to Scripture, a blessed man is a happy man. He is a genuinely joyful man. And the happiness that the Bible pictures is not temporary happiness, you see. It's one of true time and circumstance withstanding, unstealable, unshakable, everlasting, eternal joy, peace, and contentment. We've been learning through the Beatitudes that the blessed man is the man who is approved by God, favored by God, a man who shows himself to be a genuine child of God. Isn't it interesting to you that both the Savior and the psalmist begins their teaching with the blessed by teaching us who and what the blessed is to not be confused? So let it be made clear, brothers and sisters, from Scripture The scripture is not silent. The scripture is not sly. It's not secretive about God's long-term purpose for his people, for you and me. And what is that purpose? That you and I would be blessed. The psalmist celebrate every foretaste of that heavenly promise that the people of God are blessed and will be blessed. Dear friend, if you are here this afternoon and you are not a Christian, take note of this important truth. That contrary to what the world offers us, Toil, struggle, misery, death, and judgment. You do something wrong in our culture today and you get automatically canceled. The gracious and merciful God of the universe desires you to be blessed. The Christian life is one that is favored and approved by the God of the universe. May no man or woman who is truly honest with himself, who doesn't know God, who knows himself or herself say, If they're honest with themselves, may no man say, no woman say that money is better, that your social security or 401k is more secure, that sex, alcohol, and drugs bring true satisfaction, that reputation or Twitter followers or bigger houses or faster cars gives you lasting happiness because it's just not true. The truth is, apart from God, life is meaningless. Life is worthless and empty. Without God, life is is simply a misery. It's miserable. To drive this point further, I love what a commentator notes, how the Psalter, the entire book, which from its very beginning, making us think, at once follows a surprising adjective, blessed, with a surprising noun, man. Blessed is the man. He says, the first question here is the modern one of inclusive language. For many centuries, the English word man has been both gender-specific, meaning male, and generic, meaning human. But increasingly, in the last few years of the 21st century, the generic use has been under attack in many part of the English-speaking word. Quite suddenly, as such changes go, there arises a generation which simply does not know that a man can mean, or even did mean, something else besides adult human 
male. Why, it will ask, should Psalm 1 verse 1 bless the man and not the woman? In the resulting disagreement, one party, taking the narrow use of the language of the future, abandons the generic use, while the other is willing to forfeit what it considers a perfectly good usage for no very good reasons. He continues, I have no other aims in this book other than to join this particular battle, but I do personally side with the latter and should say that since man here includes both genders, why man rather than woman is not really the question. This is what the commentator is saying. But he says, and I think I agree with this last part, but the right question is why man rather than God? He continues, practical theology, which must be with holiness rather than happiness, must also surely begin with God rather than man. The world always, and the church often, is man-centered when it should be God-centered. You following me? And I think he's absolutely correct. When reading scripture, when understanding the Christian life, it's not a debate over biology, sociology, history, practicality, or philosophy. The question is absolutely holiness rather than our happiness. It begins with God rather than man. God-centered first rather than man-centered. The point of all of that is to emphasize the life we ought to pursue in God is not for us to be blessed. We're not talking about being blessed. What is the blessed man this afternoon in order to pursue this blessedness, to be happy, to be satisfied, to be content, to obtain blessings from God in the worldly sense? As in, to God you pray, I do this for you, God, and you do this for me. As in, I'll be a good little Christian, and you bless me with health and wealth. That is not the gospel. That is not the blessing that we're talking about. That's what the heretical false teachers teach. That's what prosperity gospel preaches on TV. That's what they preach. That's a lie straight from hell. The point I'm here uh, trying to make is that if you want to understand what the blessed man is, what it means to be truly blessed, you have to understand that blessing begins with God. Amen? In fact, God has already taken that initiative. The holy relationship between him and the psalmist have already been made so that they are God-centered from the outset. These psalms, remember, are responses to God from the psalmists. They make, uh, there are many uh, faceted responses, whether it's lament or praise of the man. God has blessed. This book is the praise book of God's very own people. Blessed is the man. That is the truth this afternoon. But I want to dig a little deeper here. There is some gold nuggets in this psalm and this entire psalm book, which we cannot miss out on. The quote I read from the commentator is actually a bit outdated. It was written uh, 20 years ago in 2001, and already in just 20 years, our culture has changed so fast that we actually live in a generation that really doesn't know or doesn't want to know, doesn't want to distinguish genders. When sometime soon in our lifetime, some people who read the Bible may not know what is a man or what is a woman. And it is absolutely crucial that when we are reading scripture, we have to take it at face value. So although I understand his argument, the commentator that I just read, the question here is not why man and not woman, but God, not man. But the more important way, the more important question to view this psalm is not just through the lens of practical theology, but through the lens of biblical theology, through Christ-centered theology. And hence, listen to me now, it is utterly imperative that we read this verse in this specific instance in Psalm 1, 
as the author of this psalm intended. Blessed is the man. Not blessed are the men. Not blessed are the man and the woman. Not blessed are the people, but blessed is the man. Consider further why it's so important. Look at the rest of verse 1. It says this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, we see that the state of the blessedness or the happiness of a man is not a reward. Rather, it's the result of a particular style of life, if you will. Consider his course of life. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't associate himself with wicked thinkers. That is what is meant by the counsel of the wicked, you see. Their worldview, their controversies, their theories and their causes, their accepted norms, their arguments, their Twitter drama. The blessed man isn't wicked in his thought life. We see that the blessed man doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't put himself in situations where he will be tempted or mistaken or will be misled, you see. The blessed man isn't sinful in his behavior. We also see that the blessed man doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't belong in the crowd of critics, nor in the mob of mockers and dreary discontents. Did you notice the gradual descent? Wicked men, evil men, naturally grow worse and worse and worse. First they walk in the courses of evil, then they stand, they hang out, they chill there for a while, they stand in the way of sinners, they're waiting for the same type of people to walk by so they could hang out with them, and at length they sit in the scorner's chair. They become one of them. To walk in the counsel of the ungodly is to consent to their wicked plots. To stand in the way of sinners is to persevere in evil works. To sit in the seat of scoffers is to teach others the evil which one practices himself. Understand this, brothers and sisters, this afternoon. No one all of the sudden becomes vile or evil. That's why the old Korean saying says, a needle thief becomes a cow thief. When a man commences downward, there is no telling where he will stop. Left to himself, his eternal undoing is certain. Even scoffing alarms him not. People are saying, hey, stop this. You're going the evil way. It doesn't stop him because for the further he goes, the blinder he gets. All sin, brothers and sisters, hardens hearts, stupefies the conscience, and shuts out the light of truth. So let me ask you, if you are here and you are not a Christian, Consider your way this afternoon. What path are you on? What ways have led you where you are today? In your sin, in your unhappiness, in your addiction, in your anger, in your spiritual complacency, do you find yourself, if you're honest with yourself, digging in deeper and deeper into the abyss, the hole that you can't seem to climb out of? Sure, you can numb your senses, Distract your mind with the thousands of entertainment that is available to us with busyness and things, but it hasn't and it won't stop your progressive downward trajectory, the growing discontentment and despondency. And brothers and sisters in Christ, how do these words remind you to praise the Lord this afternoon who has led you out, led you from the evil way? The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. No one is righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, Isaiah 53.6. In asking what is the blessed man as we consider the righteous way, we are reminded that none of us have perfectly walked the righteous path. Isn't that what we're reminded of as we listen to that, the path of righteousness? 
Now, some of you guys may think, isn't that a little extreme, James? I thought Christians are supposed to share the gospel with the lost. I thought we're supposed to love our enemies. Well, yes, that is very true. But what this verse is pointing out is the blessed man's character, his very disposition, his very nature is of one that has nothing to do with sin. No inclination toward the wicked, no association with the evil, no participation in their corruption. So again, who is the blessed man? That is the question that we are trying to figure out. The blessed man is the one who walks in the way of the righteous, walks in integrity, walks not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which God has called. So what hope is there for you and me this afternoon? Who is the blessed man? We see in verse one. First, who the blessed man is not. Let's continue to the next point. Secondly, let's consider the blessed man's delightful truth. Delightful truth. Look at verse 2. It says this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In the first verse, we saw what the blessed man was not, but in verse 2, we see what the blessed man is. He is not a man of wickedness. He is a man of the word. The word but emphasizes that contrast, doesn't it? It says, The blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. Here in the very first psalm, for the very first time, in the Psalter, the great and awesome, unutterable name of God, Jehovah, occurs for the first time. In the English translation, it's written in small capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord. Well, you need to understand that no other name of God in Scripture is given so often to the Most High God. It is expressive of God's self-existence, independence, unchangeableness, and eternity. And his name is given, uh, never given to anyone else but the one true God. And so we see why the blessed man so delights in the law of Jehovah. The phrase, law of the Lord, speaks of the very words of God. It's speaking about the whole word of God then written. The incommunicable God, the unutterable God, has spoken to us his words. And it was written down for us. This is why we call it in theology special revelation. God speaks powerfully through his general revelation when we see a creation and we see his beauty, his creativity, we see his power, we see his grandness, we see his order in creation, right? It's enough to know that there is a God out there, I'm talking about general revelation, that there is a powerful and glorious God out there. That's why there's no such thing in human history as an atheistic society that is a recent phenomenon. Nobody believed that there is absolutely no God, call it whatever they want, sun, moon, ocean, force. But that's why, since they don't know who this God that is out there is, that is why God gave us the scripture. Because the word of God shows us and teaches us who God exactly is. And that's what I'm talking about, special revelation. Reading the words of God is like hearing the very voice of God. It's fellowship with God. It's communion with God. That's why Charles Spurgeon says, the true Christian has his holy delights and chief among them is his reveling in the law of the Lord, the word of God. He says, of course, David, the writer of of the Psalms, uh, most likely the author of this Psalm, had only a fourth of what we possess. It was a very little Bible then, but it has gone on increasing like a majestic river until it is the wondrous volume that we have today. We, therefore, should take ten times the more delight in it than the psalmist did. Amen? 
Brothers and sisters, if you dearly love your father and he gets sent away to a military post across the country for a few years, and the only way that you could communicate with your father with him is through letters, would you not eagerly long for his communication? When you receive it, would you not utterly delight in them? My dad sent me this letter. Of course, the way you would not delight in them, not look forward to them, is if you don't know the father. If the father isn't your father, if you are not his child, if this father is a stranger to you, his words, his letters wouldn't matter. These words would have no meaning. So, dear Christian brothers and sisters, do you delight in the true and majestic and glorious words of God? Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 tells us that the unconverted man cannot experience such delight. Of course, the unregenerate man, the non-believer, would not enjoy God's word, would not love God's word because he knows not God. He doesn't love God. He has no love of God in him. He has no fellowship with God. He has nothing to do with God because of his sins. In fact, Romans 9 verses 31 through 32 says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And because of that, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, those who approach the law of God, the word of God, in order to achieve it and work toward a blessing, toward a salvation, instead of receiving that blessing, what happens? They stumbled upon it. Instead of being delightful in it, it became a stone and a rock that caused them to fall. But not only does the blessed man delight in his words, the words of the Lord, the psalmist says, on his law, he meditates day and night. The son of the father simply cannot get enough of the word. He wants to make sure he reads every single word of it correctly. He wants to make sure he gets all the details. He wants to make sure to do what it says because he loves his father, you see. The 17th century Presbyterian pastor, William Plummer, writes, the habit of reflection chiefly distinguishes a saint from the sinner. Without meditation, grace never thrives. Prayer is languid, praise is dull, and religious duties unprofitable. And so, to the flesh and blood without divine grace, this, the delighting of God's word, is an impossible duty. It is easier to take a journey of a thousand miles than to spend an hour in close, devout, profitable thought on divine things of the word. Like prayer, Luke 18, 7, meditation of the word is to be pursued day and night, not reluctantly, but joyously, not merely in God's house on the Lord's day only, but whenever other duties do not forbid, and with such incessant study that even when the act ceases, there is no abasement of the pious affection. This man, the blessed man, loves the word of God that he is constantly, day and night, meditating on the word of God, and his heart feels it, his mind knows it. Nor does the true child of God cite any part of the divine truth. He loves all of it. Habitual and delightful thoughts are the best discovery of our hearts and our spiritual state. What you do repeatedly is a great indicator of your hearts and your spiritual state, in other words. Words and actions may be overruled and counterfeit for diverse reasons, but thoughts are the invisible productions of the soul, and without fear or mask, without restraint or disguise, undissemblingly, it discovers 
the disposition of the heart. Simply, thoughts are the immediate offspring of the soul. So basically what William Plummer is saying is what you think about most is what you are here in the heart. So my question for you, brothers and sisters, do you delight in the law of the Lord? It is the blessed man's sublimest delight to hear, to know, and to do the Father's words. In asking what is the blessed man, we see who is the blessed man. He is a man of the word. That's point number two. Point number three, what is the blessed man? Third and finally, consider his prosperous life. His prosperous life in verse three, it says this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in all that he does, he prospers. You see, in hot eastern countries where the psalmist were writing these psalms, you get the picture that trees flourished most only where there were streams of water that was flowing. All around is burnt up with heat and drought. These trees near the rivers are fresh and green. Now, there's so much meaning here that I can't get to because of time, but I want to bring out a few things. First, no man is by nature a friend of God or a tree of righteousness. In a desert where there is no water, in a world that is full of brokenness and evil, no tree should survive. A tree cannot survive in the desert alone. But the point here in this psalm is that someone planted that tree nearby a river. He is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So let me just cut to the chase and tell you that it is God who planted that tree. God is also the river and the source of life amidst the drought and death in the desert. And you see, having been planted firmly in an endless supply of life and resources, the tree, what does it do? It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Brothers and sisters, this tree is fruitful. This tree never dies. And so we see this fruitful, never dying, firmly planted, unshakable tree. What else does it become? It becomes the life-giving tree in which all other living things around can benefit from. In all that he does, he prospers. There is a surety about this man. There is a certainty about his prosperous life. Then the psalmist brings us back again to what the blessed man is not in verse 4 through 5, giving us the contrast again. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It is an extreme contrast to the blessed man. The psalmist is drawing a very deep and broad and wide contrast between the blessed and the wicked. It is an extreme contrast to the blessed man. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away, completely worthless that the wind blows. Chaff is nothing, you see. And it's comparing that to the sturdiness of the tree with the flimsy lightness of the chaff. You see, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. It's speaking about the judgment that all men will stand before God at the end of days. Every single person who is not of God will not stand in the judgment because every single person will be found guilty for their rebellion against God. It says sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not be part of the eternal redeemed congregation of God. They will have no future blessing with God because all their lives they rejected God because they lived for themselves. 
one of the most striking effects of the last judgment will be a perfect and eternal separation between the righteous and the wicked. Here on earth, we often live together, protected by the same laws, inhabiting same cities, frequenting same places of worship, of business and recreation, members of the same family, perhaps even members of the same church family, or lying in the same bed. And yet, when on the last day, when Christ judges all men, they shall part. The wicked and the righteous will be determined very clearly. You may say, well, that's not fair. This is injustice. Why is God so stinking angry? Why is God so mean? Well, verse 6 gives us the answer to this. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Simply, God knows who are his, and God knows who are not. So listen to me carefully before you shut the door on God. Before you say, I'm done, I have no hope, my life is miserable, I'm going to just die anyway. Consider who the blessed man is. If you haven't gotten my clues yet, can I tell you now? The blessed man is not you or me. The blessed man is Jesus the Christ, the man from God, the Son of God, the only one of God who walked the righteous way, who lived and loved the truth of God's word. In fact, he was the word made flesh. He and he alone lived the ultimate, prosperous, victorious life. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God who is holy and just, created all things in love for his own glory and for our good. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in ourselves, wanting to be gods on our own, deliberately disobeying God's word. And as a result, we were separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. But God, but God, in his sovereign mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man and forgive us of our sins. And how did he do this? By sending his own son, by sending the only blessed man, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to walk the path that we could not walk, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we should have paid in eternal hell. And they thought it was done. They thought he was dead. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. And whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore. And when he returns on that final day, the word of God says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is indeed the Lord of all. Every wicked man will see who Jesus is, who he is, the blessed man, that he is the righteous way, that he is the delightful truth, that he is the prosperous life. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you are here and you are not a Christian this afternoon, I want to encourage you, there is no other way. As you have seen in this psalm, we are the ones who are wicked. We are the ones who are like chaff compared to this holy God, you see. We are the ones who will not stand in the judgment. We are the ones who will be separated from the congregation of the righteous unless we have Christ. So I want to encourage you, if you do not know Jesus today, repent of your sins, trust him for who he says he is, the resurrected one, 
and trust him today as your Lord with your life. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, be reminded today that you are blessed in Jesus if you know him as your Lord and Savior, that you are happy in Jesus because he is the blessed man of God who came to save you and me from our sins. Be reminded today that you are indeed blessed because he knows you because of the righteousness of Christ. Amen? The communion, the Lord's Supper that we are about to take is a reminder that he has died for you and that he has forgiven you, that he has risen for you for our sake. It is the purpose why we gathered this afternoon. Amen? Let's pray.